it's my privilege to, to bring for you to read these words. This morning's uh, word to us, which comes from the letter of Ephesians chapter 3, starting from verse 14, which you can read in your Bible or on your phone app or on the monitors to your left and right. I'll be reading from the New International Version, the NIV. Ephesians chapter 3, starting from verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and how deep how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Morning, Renaissance. My name is Aswan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'll start with this. Uh, I took my wife last week on one of those spontaneous dates, uh, one of those where she's kind of like, I'm hungry. I don't really have it in the budget, but I kind of have to, so we're going. We're heading out to um, Burger and Lobster. I don't do this normally, but hashtag it's amazing. I love burger and lobster. It's the best, one of the best menus, I think, in New York City. Burger and lobster. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so we get there. I'm looking for parking. We pull up. Somebody's pulling out. I'm like, great, pull right in. Uh, we're about to walk to the door. And those of us who know, uh, you, your car could end up in central Connecticut somewhere if you don't pay attention to signs. So Heather's walking in. I walk over to check the sign. We good. It's lit. I'm about to walk into Burger and Lobster. When I get to the door, I see somebody talking to Heather. And, he, and it's a tall dude. The gentleman is tall. So my initial reaction was, you know what I'm saying? I put on my 1990s Brooklyn attitude. And I started walking to the door, but I realized I didn't have my Tims on, so I'm not that tall without my Tims. So I had to fall back a little bit, just change up my approach a little bit. I get in. The dude is like 7, 19. He's super tall. Not that I'm scared of people who are tall, but I was like, okay, let me chill. I get there, and um, it's David Robinson. It's the Admiral. David Robinson, and for those who don't know basketball, I'm an avid basketball fan. Uh, David Robinson won a championship with the San Antonio Spurs. He was on the Dream Team in the 1992 Olympics. He's one of the top 50 greatest players in, New York, uh, in, in NBA history. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer, and he was in town going to Burger and Lobster, and I got a chance to beat him. It was an honor. And you know what's crazy? You ever get so excited when you're in a situation or you meet somebody, you start acting like you. I was like, David Robinson? Like, what the? I didn't know what I was going to grab. Nothing. I have nothing on me. I was just so excited. Um, and man, it was, a, it was a true honor to meet him. Now, here's the deal. I don't know if I could have said this prior to meeting David Robinson. I don't know if I would have ever sat down and wrote this to anybody, but my expectation was that David Robinson was going to be a jerk. 
And, and no shade to the admiral. If you hear this, I love you, bro. We still good. We had a conversation for about like 10.7 minutes. You know, he wanted to be there. His body language said, hey, I'm going to actually talk to this guy. So I felt very good about that. But uh, I really expected him to be a jerk. And, and here's what I realized. I, I really had this hidden expectation that most high-profile celebrities or athletes are jerks. And, and I had to realize that this was buried in me so much so that it actually shaped my approach to him. Because here was my instinct. Once my brain realized it was David Robinson and I took off my 90s, you know what I'm saying? I realized who it was and I actually said to myself, all I'm going to do is shake his hand and go sit down and eat. And I had to really kind of deconstruct that thought. And I was like, yo, where did that come from? Like, it wasn't premeditated. Like, if I ever met David Robinson, I'm just going to shake his hand and go eat. But no, I realized deep, deeply within me, there are some expectations that are buried and hidden. And so that got me to thinking, as they say in the old church, they got me to thinking, right? And I started thinking, what do my expect, how do my expectations impact my behavior? How do, how do my expectations shape the things that I actually do? And, and I would imagine that my expectations have to shape, based on my experience, my expectations have to shape my approach to some degree because I was, I, it, it was so, it happened within milliseconds, I really didn't even think about it. I planned on just shaking his hand and walking away. In my mind, I'm like, you're not going to, I'm not a groupie. I'm not about to ask you for an autograph and photos and all that. But, I, but it made me think, what do my, ex, how do my expectations impact my behavior, and what I do. So in my astute self, I was reading a Psychology Today article, which I do pretty often. I just sit down and read Psychology Today. Uh, I was reading this article, and it talked about uh, something called the expectancy effect. And I thought that was interesting. So I keep reading, and they talk about this study where they, they gathered a group of elementary school teachers. Shout out to all my teachers in the building. They grab these elementary school teachers, and uh, they basically tell them that there is a group of kids that are going to excel academically. And so they give these teachers all the names of the kids, and they tell them that based on this test that they took uh, throughout the academic year, these are kids that are expected to perform well. Now, here's the punchline. The test was completely bogus. There really was no test. They just chose kids by random, and they said, these are the kids that are expected to do well. Um, and so the, the research shows that after the kids, uh, after a couple of these studies happened, they began to, to write the results of how teachers approached the students that they thought or that they expected to do well. Listen to this. It said that first, they created a warmer interpersonal environment. They smiled and nodded. Like, I don't know about you, but as a, as a, as a kid when I was going to school, my teacher saying yes and nodded at me, like, it meant something. I was doing something right. Second, they, they gave those students more specific feedback. Have you ever tried to do a job and somebody's like, oh, you're good, keep going. And you're like, well, tell me a little more than that, right? 
but they gave them specific, I would imagine, specific ways to do problems or fix problems or approach problems. Uh, they gave those students more specific feedback. Third, they taught those students more material and more difficult material. Man, think about that. How many of our kids are not challenged because they're not giving more difficult uh, material because they're expected not to know how to do it? Lastly, this blew my mind. They gave those students more opportunities to show what they knew. For instance, by waiting longer for an answer before moving on to the next student. Man, that's incredible. Do you know what that can do in the development of a young person having space to actually process in class while the teacher is actually patiently waiting for you and doesn't just go to the next student so you don't feel shamed? Man, this was amazing to me. These teachers approached the students that they expected to do well way different than they approached the students that they didn't expect to do well. And, and there is the connection. Yes, here's the deal. You and I have ex expectations, and those expectations shape our approach. You and I have expectations, and those expectations shape our approach. I think about when I was a kid, and I expected my parents to say no to something. Man, I started cleaning things that weren't even dirty. I started doing stuff that I would never do, right? I took another shower, like, yo, I'm extra clean. Like, ma, I'm ready, whatever. She, my voice, I, mother dear, right? Like, I start, the inflection in my voice changes. Man, my approach to her, because I expect her to say no, I'm trying to get her heart softened so that she could actually give me what I, what I was hoping for. And I would imagine you and I do the same thing. Here's the deal. You and I have expectations, and those expectations shape our approach. And so if our expectations matter, then it would be irresponsible for you and I to not self-diagnose our expectations and how they affect our life. See, it would, it would, it would behoove us to actually uh, begin internally to self-diagnose the things that we actually expect and how they impact our life. Now, let me ask you this question. What do you expect of God? What do you expect God to do in your life? What do you expect from God? See, some of us uh, maybe in our, we, we tried to approach God and we tried to get in a relationship with God, but we expect God to punish us for every bad thing that we've actually done. And all the bad that's happening in our lives is actually happening because God just wants to punish us. So we approach him timid. We approach him uh, very reserved. Or we don't even approach him at all. We just skip that part of the story. What do you expect of God? Because if our expectations shape our approach, and especially if they shape our approach to people, then our expectations of God shape how we approach God. Our expectations of God shape how we approach Him. So, to go a little deeper, what are your expectations of God based on? 
Like, how have you formulated the expectations that you have of God? What are they rooted in? Are they rooted in what you've heard? Are they rooted in uh, what you think God is like? Are they rooted in the Bible? Are they rooted in who his character and nature really is? Uh, what, what, where are your expectations rooted? And generally, since you and I have too much of a human view of God, uh, our expectations of, of God tend to be affected most when we experience disappointment. Our expectations of God tend to be affected most when you and I experience disappointment. See, we live in a world where, I mean, everything is relational, whether we like it or not, and, and people let us down. Can I get it? Somebody. Okay. I mean, people let us down. We live in a world where things disappoint us. People disappoint us. Those we love and trust and friends, well-intended people uh, disappoint us, yes? Uh, I remember I grew up playing basketball, and it was my thing. It's what I did. And I remember after college, I got a scholarship to college. After college, I got this opportunity to play basketball on a higher level. And I remember taking this opportunity. I needed some financial assistance. I took it to a group of people to help me, and they didn't. They said they would, but they didn't. They never really came through. And to this day, that situation actually has never been talked about. It's never been mentioned. And you know what set in? Disappointment. Real life disappointment. And to me, man, that disappointment was so great that I actually quit basketball. And if you know anything about me, that's, prob that's probably the least most possible thing you could ever think that I would do. And I was so disappointed for a period of time. I didn't want to have anything to do with the game of basketball. And you know what I've done? Subconsciously or maybe consciously, and maybe you're like me, I've taken the disappointments that have happened in my life and I've transposed them into my relationship with God. And so now, to some degree, I think God is just like everybody else. Again, this, this is subtle. Maybe, maybe it's not conscious in your mind, but somehow there's uh, these little buttons on your heart. They're not really buttons on your heart, but, but there, there's this little thing in your heart that goes off when you get into a situation, and you're like, oh, no, I can't really trust God in that because other people have disappointed me. In your disappointment, you expect God to do what people have done in the past. Now, to some of us who may not be following Jesus, here's a real thing. You may attribute uh, that God is going to disappoint you uh, to God because the people in your life that have disappointed you, they're Christians. That's a real thing. See, I was just kind of new to the Christian stuff, and the people that I asked to help me, they were Christians, and I remember being so devastated that I kind of started having this wound in my heart that God would do the same thing. And so to those of us uh, who are not following Jesus, I understand that maybe you think God is going to disappoint you because Christians have. But man, God is so much bigger and better than that. Thank God. Now, I want to be careful. Uh, this is not disappointments. Talking about disappointments is not a, a cut and dry thing. Uh, some of us have some experiences in our relationship with God that can't be easily explained. 
And, and I want to be sensitive to that. I don't want you to think I'm skating over it. So please hear me. It is, it is real. Um, yes, people can disappoint us, but there are times uh, in, our, in our relationship with God where we're disappointed about something that God has done. And I'm, I, if I could keep it real, this May will mark three years since I've lost my dad. And I had people praying, and I was praying, and I had people all over this country praying. And my dad didn't make it. And to be honest, it rocked me. I, I was truly disappointed. And here's what I've learned in the midst of this. Again, I don't want you to feel like I'm not being sensitive to the fact that there are some real disappointments in our relationship with God. But here's something that I at least uh, in my pedaling to try to find my way, this is something that I held on to in Isaiah 55, 8. It says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And why my dad need to, needed to graduate three years ago, I'm not sure. But I know he's graduated and he is at the right hand of the Father. Chillaxing. And I can say that now, but, but that moment, that time was very disappointing for me. See, sometimes you'll have real disappointments with God and God doesn't do the things that we wish he did. But I want to make sure I say this. Disappointment doesn't mean faithlessness. See, uh, a couple Father's Days ago, my oldest daughter, uh, she got a little journal that she handed to me. And in the journal, it was like they, there were some prompted questions that she answered. And one of the questions, I think, was what amazes you about your dad? And she said, I'm amazed that he still follows God when he lost g -Pop. Disappointment doesn't have to mean faithlessness. It's a real thing. Being disappointed with God is a real thing, and I don't want to escape over that. But I also know that if we're not careful, disappointment can, can also lead to some other ill effects, some being unbelief, apathy, and disengagement. See, we'll start with unbelief. Unbelief creeps in when you expect something from God that he never promises or said he would give. For example, uh, I love this passage in John 16, 33, where Jesus is actually talking to his disciples. He says this, I have told you these things, and there is a slew of things that he mentioned to them prior to this, because Jesus is about to go to the cross. And so he had this long conversation with them, and he says, I told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. See, there's a specific location for peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Listen, in this text, there is no problem-free life. And so if we ex expect that for there to never be a problem in our lives once we come to know God, that's not accurate. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will always have problems. And when we start expecting God to do things that are not consistent with his word or his character and nature, man, unbelief can set in and creep in very quickly. 
You'll kind of know that unbelief is seeping into your heart when there's things that happen in your life and you're like, I'm not praying about that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even going to pray about that. I, I'll deal with that. I don't even have the emotional real estate right now. Let me put that on the side. And we kind of know when real, uh, unbelief is setting in. Two, apathy. And uh, apathy is really just defined as lack of interest or lack of enthusiasm. Um, have, have you ever been apathetic towards God? Have, have you ever felt like, I mean, all right, God, cool. Am I talking real? Man, I know this, I know this young dude that I've, I've gotten the privilege to walk life with, and man, he's been through foster care system. He's been abused. I mean, he's been through the prison, the prison system. Uh, and I remember talking to him one day. He was like, Aswan, stop telling me to pray. What am I going to pray for? God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. What am, I pray- what am I praying for? Is that real? Man, slowly the disappointment from uh, his life seeped into how he looked at God, and he, he was growing in his apathy towards what God could do in his life. And it happens to us. Third, disengagement. And for many of the Christians in the room, the results of unbelief creeping in and the results of apathy creeping in could lead to disengagement. And, and disengagement is very simple. Have you, ha, have you ever been in a place, uh, especially in your relationship with God, and uh, maybe it's time to go to church, and you're like, you know what? Not today. Nah. I'm, I'm good. Not today. That could be an indication that disengagement is seeping in. Uh, I think about the times when I've been in really rough emotional spaces, and I would hear a song that, that for me would be my, that's my, that's my song. You know what I mean? That it would take me to the third earth. And I can tell when disengagement is happening because I'm like, I don't even want to hear that right now. I'm good. I'll just go go to sleep or check my fantasy basketball roster. Don't judge me. Man, it's true that disappointment can lead to unbelief, apathy, and disengagement. Uh, and here's what, I, what I've learned, that it's primarily rooted in the fact that we have too much of a human view of God. And see, we must be careful that disappointment and all its ill effects don't creep into our relationship with God. Here's a principle that I've been using to, to kind of self-diagnose where I am with my expectations of God. It's this. Disappointment is a result of mismanaged expectations. And it's our job. It's our intellectual responsibility to manage our expectations of God. See, we have to be mindful what the foundations of our expectations of God are. Disappointment is a result of mismanaged expectations. And here's the thing. What's at stake? See, because if our, uh, if our expectations of God impact how we actually approach him, what is actually at stake? What's at stake is that you and I could actually miss the whole intention of life. The whole thing was designed by God so you and I could be in deep, intimate relationship with him. God, the creator, 
designed us. Back in Genesis, it tells us that he took some dirt, he put it together, he breathed on it. And it became a living soul, and and God was so giddy, he was so excited that that object now could become the object of his love. He was so excited that that's why he went through all the trouble of doing all this, putting all this together. The The world is tailor fit for humans. Is it not? And God's desire is to be in deep relationship with us. And if our expectations of God are such that uh, we don't really approach him correctly, we could be in danger of missing out on that. That's the treat. Jesus says it somewhere in the, well, I know where it's at. It's in John 10. But Jesus says it in the, Jesus says in the Bible, for those who may not know this, Jesus says in the Bible that uh, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And that's his hope for you and I. And if we don't self-diagnose our expectations of him, we could actually miss out on that. See, our scripture this morning, and Lester did a good job reading it for us, is found in Ephesians 3. And Paul, uh, essentially, who is a murderer turned church planner, Paul is actually writing a prayer from prison. He's writing this passionate prayer, and the words don't do justice. When you study this passage, uh, the fervor that he's actually trying to communicate to this people in Ephesus. He's actually communicating to them how marvelous the fact that there are non-Jews and there are Jews who have these cultural differences but now are being wrapped up into one group of people. He's amazed by that, and he's writing to them. And in the first half of what we read, if you start in uh, in Ephesians 3, verse 17, what Paul is trying to show here is what he actually wants for each of them. And I would say it would be the same for us. Here's what Paul says. He says, uh, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you and I don't have the right expectations of God, we may not even approach him. And that would break God's heart. But if we look at the last portion of this scripture, one of my favorite verses, verses, Ephesians 3.20, which says this, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. What we see in this prayer is that maybe Paul, maybe we can extract from this prayer Uh, the basis to which we should build our expectations of God on. And I I think there are three things that Paul mentioned here, and Paul starts right out the gate. He says, now to him who is able. See, God is able. If we pause here, man, I hope this revolutionizes what we expect of God. The first expectation we should have is that God is able. You and I aren't, your bank account isn't, there there isn't anything else that's able, God is able. Let's go deeper. Uh, As I was preparing, uh, I thought about this scripture in John 11, where Jesus has this interaction with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
And I want to read a little bit of this for you. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I want you to bookmark that. And I mean, I don't know if anybody has paper Bibles anymore, but if you did, get an outline, outline it, underline it, right? But I want you to, oh, you can do that on your screen too. You can tap it and hold it. Go find the color. I know how it is. We, we do this. But I want you to underline that. Uh, it's the first time that John, the gospel writer, says, Lord, the one who is sick. It seems kind of uh, not placed correctly, but let's keep reading. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. Man, just remember, wherever you are in life and whatever you are experiencing, I want you to know it's for God's glory. That's probably another message. Now, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I want you to underline that again. The God, John, the gospel writer, is, is making sure you and I know that these are people Jesus loves. Like, he's intentional about making sure that that point is not lost. Let's keep reading in verse 6. So when he heard this, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Emoji. Right? Like, I don't understand. Like, I, I, if, if, I, listen, it's fair to bring all of yourself to the text, to the Bible. Those of us who may not feel good about the Bible, man, bring all of yourself and your emotions to it. I trust, trust me, I believe God will make sure he works it out. But, man, I look at that passage and I'm like, what do you mean? He heard that somebody he loves is sick and he stayed two more days. Like, I don't understand. I think John was intentionally setting us up, knowing that we would hear this and not to misconstrue that because Jesus didn't go doesn't mean he didn't love them. And then he said, this is Jesus, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So in between this time, uh, Jesus, uh, Lazarus dies. And it's been several days now, and Lazarus dies. And now Jesus shows up on the scene, and Martha is like, Jesus, if you were here, my brother, my brother would be alive. And, and this, I hope you get to see, this is where the real disappointment probably set in, right? Like, like I, we sent a messenger for when he was sick, and now you show up when he's dead? Come on, God. This is where the, the, the unbelief or the apathy or the disengagement could have actually crept in. In verse 22, uh, Martha says this, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And I don't think he was discarding her disappointment. I don't, th I don't think he was saying that not being... Um, understanding about how she felt. I think he wanted to meet her expectations with the truth. Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And if we keep reading the passage, Jesus goes on to tell all the people who are standing by the tomb, he tells them to roll away the stone, and he tells Lazarus, come forth. And then he tells them, take off the grave clothes. Here we have a person who was good and dead. Remember, the time span had been four days. Lazarus was good and dead for four days. This was no accident. This wasn't happenstance. Maybe he could have survived for two days, two and a half days, but this is four days. He is good and dead. And Jesus comes and raises him to life. And I feel like what Paul is actually doing when he starts his prayer with now to him who is able, he's saying the one who is able is the one who brings dead people to life. Mm. He wants the people in Ephesus to remember that that's the God who is able. He's able to do that. You and I can't do that. And here's the truth. You, the greatest limitation for, the human, for mankind is the fact that we can't save ourselves. It's the fact that there's a gap between us and God. There's an offense between us and God. And God decided to take on human nature, to come down, to introduce himself into human history, to pay a price on our behalf so the gap between us and God could be closed. See, God is able to do that. That's what he's able to do. God is able, not you, not your bank account, not your situation, not your friend, not your spouse, not your counselor, not your statuses, not your net worth. God is able. Point two, Paul says God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Here's the truth, Renaissance. We think too small of God. Because of our human limitations, we're finite. He's infinite. We think way too small of God. Think about the biggest thing that you've ever asked God for. Think about it. Put it in your... uh, You can't hold it. This is metaphoric, okay? Put it in your hand. Hold it up. This... Think about the biggest thing you've ever asked God for. That's too small. It's too small. Paul is saying that God that's able to bring dead people to life is also able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or think. I was driving to my mom's house in Queens, and I saw the Mega Million. This was a couple months ago. I saw the Mega Million billboard. It said like $212 million, and I started dreaming about what I was going to do with that money. Don't act like I'm the only one, Crystal, Right? I've thought about, like, yo, I'm like, yo, this is what I would do. I'm going to do this first. I'm going to be debt-free first. Then, okay, I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to do this. And I felt like my imagination was boundless. I got so caught up. I had, like, 30 minutes left to the drive. All I could think about was what I would do with this money. And here's what Paul is saying, that God can do immeasurably more than your boundless imaginative thought. Man, it blew me away. That this God who's able can do more. And, I, and I'm not saying we just go to God, okay, God, you can do more. Well, instead of a Sentra, I want a Ferrari. Like, yo, if you don't have Ferrari money, I'm sorry. Like, 
You can't really do that. But, but I think the expectation is that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or think because he's able and we're finite and we think about the limitation. We put these limitations on God and Paul is saying, don't do that because look, check it out. You, the non-Jew, is standing right next to the Jew and you are actually in relationship. Who would have ever thought that? God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And here's the last thing. Paul says, according to his power. Whose power? According to his power that is at work within us. Paul closes this prayer up with a very powerful reminder that the power belongs to God. It's not saying that you and I have nothing to do at all, but the power belongs to God. Not by might, but by his power. The power belongs to God. And where is that power? The power to actually take dead people and bring them to life? Where is that power? That power is actually living and residing in the hearts of the Christian. Those who put their faith and trust And Jesus, that power is living within us. And here's the thing. He says, it's at work. I love when my wife calls me, and I'm like, yo, babe, I'm at work. And she gets it. She's like, okay, yo, you must be doing something. It better be important. (laughs) But you must be doing something because you're at work. And the power of God is at work in the hearts of those who have put their faith and their trust in him. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the application of Renaissance. I want you to get a pen and a paper this week, and I want you to write down your expectations of God. I want you to write them, like, sit and think. Sorry. Sit and think about them, and I want you to actually, I don't want you to stop at one or two. I want you to challenge yourself, push yourself. Think about what your expectations of God are. And then I want you to find a friend. I want you to share those things. And then I want you to pray this little prayer. God Show me where my expectations don't match up to who you are. And if they don't, cross them out. And if they do, circle them. Man, I think it would behoove us so that we could experience this intimacy and this depth with God if we self-diagnosed what our expectations of him really are and how they've been impacting our lives. I want to close with this. Just imagine if Paul was here. Paul would be uh, the fervor of his prayer. Um, I want to share it with us. I want you to hear this, and I want you to take this as the closing. Paul says this, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. Verse 17, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.